the Father and the Son that were not only family members, but he also considered us friends. So that's why I found that music very good. Let's go to Leviticus 23. I'll spend just a little time here because this is a command given that we are to do what we are here to do. It says in verse 34, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Eternal. A lot of people kept, just as a side note, the Feast of Tabernacles a month ago, uh, which is directly contrary to Exodus 34, verse 22, where it says that you are to keep the feast at the turn of the season or the turning of the year. And keeping it last month would have put part of the feast in the summer instead of after the turn of the year in the fall. That's why it is absolutely requisite that you use the new moon after the spring equinox, the turning of the year, instead of the one nearest, which the Jews and many in the church of God have done. So they kept their Feast of Tabernacles a month early, and I hope that we will keep God's Feast of Tabernacles at the time he told us to do it in the proper form and fashion that we should keep it, and I think at the right time. On the first day shall be a commanded assembly. You shall do no servile work therein. I didn't see any work going on anywhere this morning, and here we are all meeting together as God said to do on the first day. Seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. On the eighth day shall be a holy convocation to you, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. It is a solemn assembly and no servile work therein either. He did say keep it seven days, and then he includes the eighth day, which I think we understand means that there's seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles, and then tacked onto that is an eighth day, the last great day, as Christ called it when he walked in the temple, a day that has a different meaning than the first seven do. We'll get to that later. I don't want to take time at the moment. These are the feasts of the eternal, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations to offer an offering made by fire to the eternal, a burnt offering, a meal offering, a sacrifice, and drink offerings, everything upon his day. Besides the Sabbaths of the eternal, and besides your gifts, and beside all your vows, and beside all your freewill offerings, which you give to the eternal. So this is to be a day full of things that we do toward the eternal. I think we came to look upon it over the years and worldwide as somewhat of a vacation time. And indeed, it is time off from work in our daily routine. Uh, so we can vacate those things in that sense and come here. But we need to be sure that we're here doing what God would have us doing on this day or these days, as opposed to a tourist vacation where we go to an island or to a mountain or to somewhere to do our thing during the Feast of Tabernacles. 
This is a time set aside for God. And really, people wouldn't want to be removed from their vacation if they could help it. But what if God gave you time to get away from everything else and worship Him? That, just on the face of it, has to be much better than seven days on the beach at Maui. Does it not? Where you are there to enjoy sun and sand and self, as opposed to worshiping the great God, the King, who is over all the universe and wants to make you, as his friends, part of his kingdom forever and ever. Look at the upgrade there. So this is a privileged time for us, a very, very important time for us. And I want to emphasize that all through today, how important it truly is. Uh, He goes on in verse 39, Also in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, that would be fall season, you shall keep a feast to the eternal seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. He repeats what he had just said upstairs. And you shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, palm trees, uh, thick trees, willows of the brook. Uh, You shall rejoice before the eternal your God seven days and keep it a feast to the eternal seven days in the year. It shall be a statute in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. So this goes on generation after generation. You shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are in Israel born shall dwell in booths. Now, that word in the Hebrew is sukkoth, which means simply uh, temporary dwellings and uh, refers to their traveling in the desert, in which they actually had tents. They didn't have boughs of trees out there. So he said, if you're in the place to do that, You can take and make your booth out of uh, trees or limbs, but it could be tents. We understand it temporary dwelling, and some of us change houses or we live in trailers or we live in a tent or whatever during this period of time, but the key there isn't specifically exactly what it's made of, and there aren't trees here. Uh, you can stay in a rabbit brush hut if you want, but you may sneeze the whole time. Uh, we use what we have to unplant ourselves from our normal routine and stay somewhere we don't normally go. And we'll explain that as we go on through this sermon, that this is to show a temporary existence, a temporary time. A time when you are not comfortable with where you have been, but are headed somewhere, and you are in a temporary state of being. And he refers here, as we go on down, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths, so that was animal hide booths, 
When I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the eternal, your God. So he refers to what? A transit period. A period from having been in slavery to the world, Egypt, Israel, to the promised land. That transition period could have been a very short one, except they began to complain and gripe as soon as they got across the Red Sea. We're not here to complain and gripe. We're not here to murmur. We're here to sing and rejoice and worship the King. That is the attitude with which we should be here today. And if we are not, then I am here to give you an attitude adjustment hour. Or an hour and a half, we'll see. And Moses declared unto the children of Israel the feasts of the eternal. Let's go to Deuteronomy 16. He repeats a little bit of this, but uh, worth reading this. Puts it a little bit differently. Uh, chapter 16 of Deuteronomy will begin in verse 13. You shall observe the feast seven days after you've gathered in your corn and your wine. So again, the fall season. And you shall rejoice in the feast. So he's giving us instruction here, not only that it is to be done, but what we are to do while we are here. This is vital added information to Leviticus 23. Rejoice in the feast. So you have here eight days to rejoice. And that should be our attitude and our approach. So we should have a lot of fun, a lot of good fellowship. Maybe some laughter and some uh, just singing praises to God, in prayer to God, and enjoying the fellowship with God's friends. Because we are here, God's friends. We've already seen a little emphasis on that. And as friends, as I said in the, I think, atonement sermon, we are here to reconcile to be indeed friends and to get along, and the body is to work together smoothly. There's not to be any pain expressed, not to be any trouble expressed. We are here to enjoy and praise and be a part of a body that is working together in harmony. That's what we're here to do. As I said then, the bride of Christ will not be allowed to squabble with each other throughout eternity. Won't happen. If we're going to come together and squabble and complain and gripe and murmur about this, that, or the other thing, or our neighbor or the preacher or whoever, then we're not going to be there. We're just not going to be there because he will have harmony throughout his entire kingdom, including his bride. And we're here to represent a part of that bride, that 144,000. So it is a critical issue, a primary issue, that we behave ourselves among each other as Christ will interact with his bride and she will interact with the other 144,000 who are there. 
So we're not just here to enjoy ourselves. We're here to fulfill a type, a type of the bride of Christ, to be like she would be and like she would be to him. And she is to revere and honor and glorify her husband, is she not? Isn't that what God tells the wives to do in relationship to their husbands, even here on earth? That that marriage is to be a type of Christ and his bride. And therefore, on an everyday basis, we conduct our marriages as if it were Christ and his bride. Now, I know that's a tough standard to live up to, and we work at it day by day. But we need to have in mind that that is what this life is about. So then when we come together to worship Him, and we're going to see, I believe today, maybe an emphasis that we did not look at over the years as much in keeping the Feast of Tabernacles and what it means to us. I'm going to open that box a little today. And we're going to understand it in a wider and greater understanding than I believe we have before. Now, we may have understood it in a way, but I don't think we emphasized it, and I don't think we really got it. So we'll move on here. Uh, Now, where was it? Rejoicing in the feast... You and your son, your daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow that are within your gates. So everybody included is to do this. Now those weren't all members of Israel for that matter. Some were other people who had brought in with the mass mixed multitude that came when they came out of Egypt. But it didn't matter if they had been brought in as slaves from somewhere else or were visiting there and begun to work for an Israelite. Everybody was to enjoy the Feast of Tabernacles. Why does he mention that here as opposed to the other feast days? Because the Feast of Tabernacles represents the time of the millennium when all people will be invited to come and be a part of the kingdom of God. Everybody will be invited. So he wants us to keep the Feast of Tabernacles in joy and in praise with whoever is among us, if they are so willing. Seven days shall you keep a solemn feast. So it's a time to rejoice, and yet it has a very solemn undertone. Worshiping God is a very solemn thing. Rejoicing in it is a very joyful thing done with a solemn promise, done together. Because the eternal God shall bless you in all your increase and all the works of your hands, therefore you shall surely rejoice. So he says he will bless us if we keep the Feast of Tabernacles and we will have a wonderful increase. So... Surely, then, rejoice. Three times in a year shall all your males appear, spring holy days, uh, Pentecost, and the fall holy days. Verse 17, every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the eternal your God, which he has given you. 
So he says here that we bring offerings to God as he has blessed us and as he has given to us. So we are returning to him the joy that he had in giving us the good and perfect gifts from above, which he says every good and perfect gift stems from him. So rejoicing uh, includes a lot of things. Giving as you're able to God. Uh, I was going to include the rest of that, but I don't think I will for sake of time. It's a little off the subject, although it still applies. Other things that we are to do. Now, we were to be doing this as a type of wandering in the desert. Let's go to Second Corinthians no, wait a minute. I didn't go to Nehemiah 8 yet, did I? Let's go to Nehemiah 8. This is important to include. Nehemiah is the time when Ezra, Nehemiah, and others had come out of the 70-year captivity in Babylon. And through Ezra, they had been building the temple. And under Nehemiah here, they were rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. So let's pick it up in verse 14. Nehemiah 8. And they found written in the law which the Eternal had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month. We just read that command. And here as they were building the wall, the seventh month came, and they reread it and said, Oh, we're supposed to be doing that. And that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth to the mount, fetch olive branches, pine branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of thick trees to make booths as it is written, which we just read. So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths, everyone upon the roof of the house and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God, and in the street of the water gate, and the street of the gate of Ephraim. So there were options as to where you could put them. Top of your house, in front of your house, out in the street. Uh, you didn't get run over. And all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths, and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day, had not the children of Israel done so. And there was very great gladness. You mean to tell me that from the time Moses went up on the mount and Joshua became the leader and they crossed into the promised land, from maybe the time Joshua died or got old or soon after, through all the times of the kings and the judges, they had not done as Moses had commanded. And here they read it and said, hey, we should do that. It's like one day I woke up and said, there's all these fasts in the book of Zechariah. And it says you should be doing that. It's an end time prophecy. And I said, God put that in an end time prophecy and said you should be doing it. We got to do it. It was kind of a wake-up call like they had here. Nobody's been keeping the booze. They haven't been staying in them. 
after generation after generation, and yet Moses had said, through all your generations. Do we even begin to wonder then why God got upset with Israel over their conduct? This was just one thing. There were many others, of course. So there was very great gladness. Praise, gladness. I want to emphasize that as we go through these various scriptures. That's what (coughs) these days are about. And they kept it in a solemn assembly according to the manners, it says the end of verse 18. Now let's go to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. And here we will see again the attitude or the approach that was extant during the time of the wandering in the wilderness. Here I want verse 20. Well, let's go, let's go back. We read this just the other day, uh, starting in verse 15. I mean, 18. All things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. His ministry was to reconcile man and God. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the words of reconciliation. So all peoples who were available were to keep the Feast of Tabernacles because it pictures a time when man and his relationship with God is going to be reconciled during the millennium. And it will not be until then. Now, a few are, cons- are currently being reconciled to God by accepting Christ as their Lord and Master and King and Ruler and Redeemer and Savior. Just a few now are being offered the New Covenant. But the reconciliation of the world also comes through Christ, and its first iteration is the Feast of Tabernacles followed by the last great day when even more are invited to be reconciled. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead be reconciled to God. For his sake, in his stead, he came... He started the reconciliation process between man and God, and Paul is telling us to continue with that reconciliation. For he has made him to be sin for us who do no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He didn't sin, and through him our sins can be forgiven. And then, through him, we can come to have the righteousness of God, not our own self-righteousness, where we put ourselves first and our attitudes first and our wants and needs first above God. Can't do that. But what I want to point out here, along with that, is that we are here only as ambassadors. If the U.S. sends an ambassador to Poland or Japan, he does not become a citizen of that nation 
He is there to represent that the United States to that nation. Now, when he selected Israel to be his chosen people through Abraham and on down, he expressed that he wanted them to represent him, to be like him, and that they were to be in a transitory stage headed for future promises. Now, we are here as ambassadors of the kingdom of God, to represent God, to represent Jesus Christ, to act like Him, to walk like Him, to do as He did, because we are to be an example of what He is. That's what an ambassador does. So when people look at you and me in the church of God, what they should see is the Father and the Son through us. We are the light to the world. Now that is a truly scary proposition because we fall so far short of their glory in our everyday lives and the world can look down upon us very easily. Now, it doesn't matter in one sense what their attitude is toward us. They may pick at us and they may make a false accusation and create a false witness about us. Christ was here as an ambassador to his Father. And he never made one mistake, represented his Father perfectly, and yet he was castigated and persecuted by nearly everybody around and hated because he was not their vision of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, speaking of the Pharisees and the Jews. So you may be truly accused, and you may be falsely accused. And I suspect with all of us, there's some from each side of that, and all through the middle. But that doesn't mean we should not aspire to and try to be an example to this world of what the Father and the Son are as His ambassadors. And also we are truly here over a transitory period of time. Let's add to that in First Peter 2. 1 Peter 2. Peter puts it a little bit differently. <coughs> Now, he's telling us in the previous chapter, we're like grass, but we can endure forever. And in chapter 2, then he says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all, all evil speakings. What does he tell us in Philippians 4, verse 8? That we're only to look on the positive side. We are not to look at the negative side. We are to be positive. If there is negative, we get away from it. We are positive. That is the only allowable attitude we can have based on Philippians 4, verse 8. It's the only allowable attitude we can have based on 1 Peter 2, verse 1. 
no evil speaking about anyone. There's you a challenge. As newborn babes, little babies don't speak evil. They don't have any guile. They don't have any malice. As little children, innocent, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So we are supposed to be humble and meek and positive and growing forward. If so be, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Well, I have to apply verses 1 and 2 to me and live up to it because I have certainly learned that God is gracious. He extends His grace, His unmerited pardon to people who simply do not deserve it. We are full of self. We are full of self-justification. We are full of self-righteousness. We are full of everything selfish. So we have to change that and become unselfish as God and Christ are. And I've tasted His grace, haven't you? Haven't you been forgiven for an awful lot to be sitting here today? We all have. So we've tasted that. Now we've got to live up to having received that grace. There is a reaction that comes to God's forgiveness and mercy and love. And that is to extend it back to him and to each other. To whom coming as unto a living stone. He is the foundation rock. But he is not like most rocks. He's living. He has the strength, the power, the weight of a real rock, but this one is alive with that kind of power attached. Indeed, of, disallowed indeed of men, as I just said, but chosen of God and precious. Now, he then includes us. You also as lively stones. We are to come not as the rock, but as lively stones to be like he was and is. You also as lively stones, not blockheads, not concrete blocks, living lively stones, possessing the power, the strength, the energy of Christ, alive built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So we're to be like him, to be as he is, be his ambassadors. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confounded. You can put your trust, your faith, your hope in Christ. No one else can give you what he can give you or do for you what he can do. Nobody can. We go to him for that kind of strength and power. Under you, therefore, which believe he is precious... 
But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. God has raised him and made him the chief cornerstone, the head of the corner, even though man has disallowed him. And the whole world has disallowed him, and the whole world is being deceived by pharmacia and vaccination shots right now and are on the way toward the mark of the beast and worshiping Satan the devil is where they're headed. So he was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he still is. The whole world is denying him. Even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereby, or whereunto also they were appointed. So you got those who will not obey and follow Satan's way and man's way. Then what do you got? What else in addition to that? Listen carefully here. You are a chosen generation. Christ even said this generation would not pass out, this generation of Christians, until he has come to this earth. The older people of worldwide will not all be dead, or the younger people that were there will not all be dead. This generation will not pass until that's done. Now you could say, well, we got kids that are church kids now. Does that include them? No. The generation to which it was preached in strength and power. That happened in the 50s and 60s, yeah, maybe 70s and a little bit in the 80s, but not much. So that generation that was called, most of our children are not part of it. Most of them are not called. It's the exceptions, not the rule. Now, he did call some of our children, but mostly us older people. And if he did call a few of our children, we're simply blessed that he did because he didn't with most. So the generation he's referring to has to be that generation he called. So when he says you are a chosen generation, he's talking to us right here. Now he was also talking to the first century church because they had also been a chosen generation to preach the gospel and to be part of the 144,000 which we're also invited to be. All told that many. But this is a chosen generation just like Peter, James, and John's generation was chosen. And in that, you are a royal priesthood. We are to be kings and priests with Christ throughout the millennium. So we are here today to represent that priesthood. Here's a little hint. You won't be a physical priest. As a king and a priest, you're going to be spirit. And we'll emphasize that more here in a little bit. But you and I are looking to the millennium for a different purpose than our little children and the people who survive the millennium. A holy nation, a redeemed people, redeemed from the world by the blood of Christ and his resurrection. That you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. 
the understanding of his truth. That's a marvelous light. Which in time past were not a people. We were just individuals out there in the world. But are now the people of God, which have, and, and which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, your ambassadors, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 5, here he calls us strangers and pilgrims. That means that we are to be different and the world will look upon us as strangers. You saw that in a lot of Old West movies. Somebody rides into town, it's a small town, Everybody knew that was a stranger. What are you doing here, stranger? Are you up to good or no good? The world should look upon us, in that sense, as strange or as strangers. Because why? We don't act like them. We don't look like them. We don't talk like them. We're different. We're supposed to be. We're working on it. But we learned that years ago. We were strange because we kept the Feast of Tabernacles instead of Christmas. Or Passover instead of Easter. We're strange because we kept Saturday instead of Sunday. See, we walk into town and they say, You're not a Methodist. You're not a Baptist stranger. Who are you? You're different. So it's... It is in our doctrine that we're different, but it also should be in our conduct. They lie, cheat, and steal. We should be honest and upright and forthcoming and not be false witnesses and worship God above everything. That's different than they are. But I want to emphasize that this is only temporary. We're here for a short time, and we are not all going to die out I'm talking to you with gray in your hair before Christ returns. He says, just to corroborate that, and we know it, in Haggai, that there will be old men around who saw the former temple in its glory and see the latter temple and make the comparison. So there got to be some gray beards around who saw worldwide at its best. At its glory. I'm not talking about the 80s. There wasn't much glory. Not even the 70s, really. Having seen it back then as a child and as a young adult, I think the 50s and 60s were the height of its true growth and spiritual strength. And it began to wane through the end of the 60s, into the 70s and 80s, and then it died. The church itself died. Sardis is gone. Dead. What does he say in Hosea? I will destroy your mother. Our mother, the church, has been destroyed. And only a few, na only a few names remain out of worldwide. Fits the picture of Sardis perfectly. But some remain who will be able to compare what God is about to build with the two witnesses and the remnant and see that it is going to be far superior to that which we experienced before. 
if worldwide, is an example of the kingdom of God to be forever and ever, I think I'll pass. Thank you. We have to do better. We must do better. He says there in Haggai and Zechariah that we will do better. Thank God for His grace and mercy. So he said, Be as strangers and pilgrims, and abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. All right, let's go on from there to Hebrews 11, and we'll see some examples of what Peter was talking about. Hebrews 11. I want to start here with Abraham, verse 8. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed and went out not knowing where he went. He was told, go find a city. And he didn't know where to go to find it. But he was going to go look. Now we are told to come out of this world, and to come out of its cities and go dwell in the wilderness where God will deliver us. And we're to look for a city. He went to look for a city. Did you, did you know you're looking for a city? Well, I'll tell you one you're looking for. You're looking for Jerusalem, which has been abandoned and desolate for many generations and does not exist as far as anything there that you would recognize. The one in the Middle East has been there ever since the Arabs built it. And they brag about. But it's never been desolate. It's been knocked over a few times, but there are always people there, even after it was knocked down. The one we're looking for is one that does not today even exist. The foundation stones were even thrown down so that it would not be. But that's not the only one we're looking for. Let's go on. Didn't know where he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country. The promised land was strange. Does that echo in your ear properly? I always thought the promised land was in the Middle East. When I flew there and got off a plane and looked around a little bit, I said, if this is a promised land, I'll pass. I'm out of here. I went over the whole country. I didn't see anything I wanted. The true Jerusalem and the true promised land is a strange place, even to most of the church. They're not going to believe it. They just won't believe it. Dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob. So he dwelt in booths or tabernacles, tents, while he looked for a city. The heirs with him of the same promise, for he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham was looking for something built by God, a city of God. And then uh, Sarah had a baby, and many, many people came from that as a nation. 
Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them far off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Ambassadors, and the same words Peter used, strangers and pilgrims on the earth. This isn't our permanent home. It never was intended to be our permanent home in our present state. This world will be our permanent home, but not in our present state. We're going to heaven, yes, but for only a year. Then we're coming back here to make this place our home. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. We're here seeking something that we do not yet have, are we not? And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. That's worded a little awkwardly, but you look it up in other translations. It's if they had a desire for, or they longed for, or they missed, or they wanted to go back where they had come from, they could have found a way. Lot's wife was not going where she was instructed to go. She looked back and wanted to go back where she had come from. That's like those dogs and sows in the wallow are going back to their vomit, going back to the way they used to live. When worldwide was dying, many people went right back to Protestantism or simply gave up obeying God and are doing nothing. And many are kind of going through the motions and not really doing it. But, eh, Feast of Tabernacle was something we always enjoyed and the kids liked and some of them still go to the Feast of Tabernacles, but that's about all they do. They don't follow the rest through the year, day by day. No, we're strangers and pilgrims with a goal, with a purpose. If you're looking for something, you don't sit around and do nothing, do you? He tells us we're to seek it like we would seek silver and gold. There are people who went to California, but particularly to Alaska, in the gold rush. And I say particularly because there was a lot of bad weather up there, 40 below. There were mosquitoes so thick you couldn't breathe. There were all kinds of privations in Alaska. But boy, in that gold rush, they were going for it no matter what. When they got off the boats there, the head of the bay and headed for the interior to find gold, they climbed all over each other and stepped over each other's dead bodies to go get to the gold. And when they got to the gold field, if somebody found some and they knew it, they killed them and took it. Gold fever. They would do anything for that gold. We will do anything necessary to be part of the kingdom of God and to find that city that he has for us. That's what we're here for. But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, 
for he has prepared for them a city. Did Christ not say in John 14, In my Father's house are many mansions, and I'll go and prepare them for you. So he's preparing to have us in a city, in mansions, whatever exactly that means, a place to dwell is what he's preparing for us. Now, what city is that? Go to Revelation 21. He's not preparing for you and me physical Jerusalem. He is going to use the remnant of his church to build the temple, physical one, and a wall for a specific purpose. Why do we need to go through that and build it in a very short time, 70 weeks, and then have it defiled by Satan and the beasts and the false prophet immediately after it's built? And then they control it for the rest of man's existence here on the earth. We're not building that temple for us. We're not building that temple for our children, for the millennium. We're building that temple so that we will have something there that is holy from God. And Satan and his minions take it over. They take not only the city and the temple, but it says in the book of Daniel that they will also take the gold and the silver. God's treasures. Nebuchadnezzar's had the temp- Nebuchadnezzar had the temple treasures, didn't he? Haven't others through the years? God has allowed it. Didn't the Philistines have the Ark of the Covenant for a while? God is going to let his treasures go to Satan and the world for three and a half years, and plus probably through the seven last plagues, the last year, until he comes back. There's no other reason. Do you see any other reason for that temple to be built than for God to allow His holy things to be profaned? And that is the last nail in their coffin when they take over His holy things and proclaim them to be of Satan the devil. They will think they have won and their God the devil has won. Won't need that temple in the world tomorrow. Won't need it. Go to Revelation 21. New heaven and new earth are coming. No more oceans. Verse 2, I saw the holy city. That's the city Abraham's looking for. He was temporarily in Jerusalem. But it says that it's an eternal city he was looking for. All those people in Hebrews 11 are waiting for the first resurrection, and that city, you and I are here for the first resurrection, whether we're dead and resurrected, or whether we're lifted off the ground if we're still alive, for which city? The new Jerusalem. Not the physical one that will be built. The holy city, coming down from God out of heaven, 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The walls even equate to 144,000. And though only those who overcome will inherit all things, and God will be his God, and he shall be my son. Verse 7. Verse 9. There came to me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials of the seven last plagues, the year when we're having our honeymoon with Christ, and talked with me saying, Come here, I will... Show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And what did he show him? Next verse. The holy Jerusalem ascending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was likened to a stone most precious. That's you and me and the rest of the 144,000 is who that is. We comprise the city. We're part of the city. We live in the city with the Father and the Son. Won't need a temple then. Verse 22, I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it, and their light will shine to the nations. And that is not after the millennium and the great white throne judgment, because it talks about people coming there, and those who are abominable still will not be allowed there. So this is during the millennium when there are still physical people who are still physically sinning. When the Father and the Son and the Bride are ruling from the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. We're beginning to see a little picture here. When I was a little kid, eight, nine years old, and we talked about the millennium, and I went to the feast, and they talked about the millennium, They would read to me Isaiah 11, and I had this vision in my head of how during the millennium, I would be playing with poisonous snakes, I would be laying my head on a lion and a wolf or a lamb, any animal, they would all be tame, and everything would be wonderful and beautiful, and I would be there, and I would be doing those things. And that's what they told me in the sermons at the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm beginning to think that's not going to be. Why do I think it's not going to be? Because I'm old and gray. And I'm not going to be some kid growing up in the millennium playing on the hole of the asp. Or with a wolf. Where am I going to be? I hope by the grace of God, I'm in the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, reigning with the Father and the Son over the whole earth as kings and priests with them. I am not looking forward to the millennium as a nice place to be a physical human being. I'm way beyond that. Now, maybe some of your children can still have those scriptures read to them, And it will apply to them, because I think it is now that close. But when I was a kid, we thought it was that close, but it wasn't. It wasn't. Now we're not looking at that anymore. That's not the city you want to go to, the physical one. You may be here as an old people, rejuvenated. The blind are going to see 
The deaf are going to hear, the lame will walk, and have deer legs, and be able to build a temple because a bunch of people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s can't do that. Just can't do that. We, we don't have it anymore. So he's going to renew us. And it's going to astound the world that he's taken weak, base, and elderly to build his temple and his city. And that's the end of it for us. We're waiting for the heavenly city to come down and be part of it as part of the 144,000. So when you keep the Feast of Tabernacles today, you need to kind of upshift a bit from maybe the way you thought of the millennium as a child and a young person and realize we're not here for that. Now, I think in some level we understand that and have. I don't think it's anything that new, but I don't think it's been emphasized what we have to look forward in the millennium. We've been told we'll be kings and priests, but the millennium is for those who are left over after the seven last plagues and for maybe some of our children who have been protected in Zion through that. And they will live a physical life in the millennium, hopefully as leaders for the world's people who survived. Not very many, just a hundred million, Daniel says. Not eight and a half billion hundred million, that's all. That's the city you and I look forward to. Let's go to Luke. No, we don't have time. I was going to use the transfiguration there, uh, and maybe I'll touch on it briefly, but uh, Christ took James, Peter, and John up on the mountain, and he was transfigured. They went to sleep, Luke's account says, and when they woke up, he had been transformed into a glorious being. And there with him were Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. Why that choice? Well, Malachi 4 says that he's going to send a type of Moses and Elijah here at the end as two witnesses or ministers of his to do the same work, essentially, that Moses and Elijah did in the past only in a greater way because it's at the end dealing with those who are in the new covenant, not the old. But those disciples saw Moses and Elijah with Christ, so they assumed that the first resurrection had occurred and they were in the kingdom of God. Christ was glorified. Moses and Elijah probably were in the vision. So they said, shall we build booths for the three of you? This must be the Feast of Tabernacles. Moses and Elijah were dead and buried, and no one's gone up yet. They knew that the resurrection would be followed by the millennium. So they assumed that Moses and Elijah there, the resurrection had occurred. That's not what he was trying to show them. He was trying to show them that there had been an original Moses and Elijah, and a lot of people had looked to them. In his day, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, everybody was still looking to Moses and Elijah. They weren't looking to Christ who was among them. They still fell back on Moses and Elijah. Now he is also going to send, and he said, I've already sent 
John the Baptist as a type of Elijah. But in the end, there are going to be two more. And they will represent Moses and Elijah. But they aren't to be worshipped. They are not the ones to be looked to. People have made the mistake all along of looking too much to the physical man. The church got to the point it looked too much to Herbert Armstrong. And Herbert Armstrong looked too much to Herbert Armstrong. We made a mistake. Now, he was a minor type of Moses, I believe. And his son may have been a minor type of Joshua. One gave the law and returned the truth, and the other one uh, didn't do so good. But they weren't the final types. So, we're not to look to Moses and Elijah from the past except as examples of how to live. We're not to look to two at the end, even though they do miracles and signs and wonders. It's not them, it's God. There in Zechariah 3, it says they'll put a stone. What is the stone? We already read about the foundation stone. That's Christ. And the eyes of all seven churches will be on Him, not on the two. The church cannot make that mistake again that we made with Herbert Armstrong. We can't go there. At the end, he told them what that was about. This is my son. Hear him. Jesus Christ is the key to everything, not men. And he wanted to drill that into us. Because we made the mistake with Herbert Armstrong of looking too much to the man. And that church died. When he brings up another one, we're to look to Christ. Yes, there will be human leaders and they should be respected. They should be obeyed. They should be followed. But they shouldn't be worshipped or put in the place of Christ in any way. He is so far and above anything or anybody. Uh, I'm going to go beyond what I normally do a little bit, have been lately. This is Let's go to Hosea 12. We just went through the book of Hosea, and much of it is about our current nation, Israel, or I mean the United States, as Ephraim. And this scripture is pertinent to that. Hosea 12. Talking about this nation today. And here I think I wanted verse 9. And I that am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt will yet make you to dwell in tabernacles as in the days of the solemn feasts. So he proclaims to the United States of America as Ephraim, as an end time nation, but he is going to make us dwell in tabernacles just like we did in Egypt, or when we came out of Egypt. <coughs> that was to be forever throughout our generations. And it's not something that will not be done in the future. It will be. Is it done in America today? <coughs> By a very, very few who are a redeemed nation and people.
who do it today. And you and I are doing it this week. <coughs> because it was commanded back then, and it is going to happen to America. But a lot of stuff has to happen before that will occur. It won't be uh, until the millennium. <coughs> then it will occur. We're going down first. Now, I won't go to this one as well, but in Matthew 21, 2 through 9, <coughs> is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9 and verse 9, where it says, Our Savior will come riding upon an ass. And he instructed his disciples to go find an ass and her foal. And he would ride into Jerusalem and says there that they spread palm fronds and branches in front of him as if he were very important. You do that kind of thing for a king, for a very important personage. And it says they sang hosannas as he rode in. Hosanna, we sing it, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to the king. It's in one of the songs we used for special music years ago. He was riding into Jerusalem, he's coming back, and we should sing Hosanna to his name. I want song to be a big part of this feast. We sing praises to the Lord, the King of hosts. Now let's corroborate that a little bit. Psalm 47. Psalm 47. I've got just a few of these. won't take too long, but we don't have anything to do but eat anyway. And we're here to worship the King. <clears throat> Psalm 47, Oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with a voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is terrible. He is a great king over all the earth. What is Psalm 47 talking about? Christ isn't the king over the whole earth right now. The devil is. This is talking about the millennium. It's talking when you and I are kings and priests with Christ. That we're to sing hosannas. He shall subdue the people under us and the nations under our feet. We'll rule over them as kings and priests. He shall choose our inheritance for us. The excellency of Jacob whom he loved. God is gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Music. Made to God. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises unto our King. Sing praises. We're here today as a type of the millennium when we will be kings and priests and the whole world is going to be singing praises to God. That's what this is about. This is what we are here to be doing right now as a type of that period of time. For God is the king of all the earth. 
sing you praises with understanding. So when we're here, let's sing praises to God out of our hymnals with special music, however we are moved to do. But let's keep in mind that we're here to picture the world tomorrow and the Feast of Tabernacles then. Understand that. God reigns over the heathen. He won't until this time. He will come and take over the rule of the heathen. God sits upon the throne of his holiness. The princes of the people are gathered together, even the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. So all the peoples are going to come. And the peoples of Abraham, the Israelites, are going to come and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And to sing praises and hosanna to God. Uh, let's catch two more on that. Psalm 147. Psalm 147. Praise you the Eternal, for it is good to sing praises unto our God, for it is pleasant and praise is comely. Same period of time we're talking about. The Lord does build up Jerusalem and gathers together the outcasts of Israel. That's millennial. In a small way, it's the remnant being gathered to build the latter temple here in the next few years. He heals the broken in heart and binds up their wounds. He tells the number of the stars and calls them all by their names. Great is our Lord and of great power, like a concrete rock. He has that kind of power, though he's a living stone. Sing to the eternal with thanksgiving, sing praise upon the harp, to our God. He, well, it says above that, he lifts up the meek. When is he going to do that? When he lifts them off the earth at the seventh trump. That's what you and I are looking forward to. We're not looking forward to living as humans in the millennium. It's not what we're here for. Chapter 149. Praise ye the eternal. Sing to the eternal the Lord a new song. When are we going to sing the new song that only the 144,000 can sing? When we're resurrected at the first trump. When we're preparing to go rule the world with Christ. We'll sing the new song and his praise in the congregation of saints. So this is pictures of time when the millennium is here and we are ruling with Christ, singing the new song. That's what we're looking forward to. That's the city we want to be part of. Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. He's going to bring us to Zion here at the end as a place of refuge. And then Zion and Jerusalem are going to be his kingdom and its headquarters forever. Let them praise his name in the dance. For... Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and harp. We're going to have to learn some kind of holy dance and dance before God and sing. 
For the eternal takes pleasure in his people. It is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom, he says in the New Testament. Quote from this. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Going to be some singing during the millennium? You betcha. Let the saints be joyful in glory. We'll be in glory at that time. Glorified. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. You can dance in the street and sing, or you can lay in your bed and sing to God. In other words, throughout life, through the day, throughout your entire life, you should be glorifying and singing to God. If not singing audibly with your voice, let it sing in your heart. There's not room for this garbage from the world. There's no room for depression. There's no room for discouragement. There's no room for selfishness. There's no room for talking about each other in a negative way. There's no room for anything negative. If you're singing praises to God in your heart, your heart has no malice or guise or gossip or anything like that in it because it's singing praise to the God who is the God of the Spirit and the fruit of His Spirit. And we only have room for the gifts, the fruits of the Spirit of God. That's all we should have room in our heart and mind for. This other stuff has to go. Works of the flesh. No room for that. Can't have it. Depression, discouragement, is a sin. Why is it a sin? Well, I just need a pity party. I feel bad. I'm discouraged. No! There is no room whatever for that. Why? Because it displaces displaces singing and praise to God, obedience to God, and loving God and your neighbor, because it's all based on self and self-pity, and I feel sorry for me. And that's self-worship instead of godly worship. That is breaking the first commandment. Realize if you're discouraged and wallowing in self-pity and going to go sit in the corner and eat worms, that you're breaking the first commandment. You're putting yourself and your feelings and poor, 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 pitiful me ahead of God. There's no room for that. There's no time for that. Now, have we all suffered with it? Yeah. Every one of us have, one time or another, and maybe still do imbibe once in a while, but we need to realize it's ungodly and don't let that be there. Christ did not wallow in self-pity ever. Ever. He was a man of sorrows for what he saw in the world and people destroying themselves. He sorrowed for that, but he didn't wallow in self-pity. He was busy obeying God so that he could solve the problems of the world. And we should be so busy in the work of God and his people 
and thinking about God and singing praises to Him that we don't have time for anything else. Sing to God. This is all encapsulated, encapsulated, excuse me, as the final scripture in Zechariah 14. <clears throat> says early in the chapter the day comes when he's going to put his feet on the Mount of Olives and split the valley in two when he comes back with his saints after their marriage. And he says in verse 16, after the enemies have been rounded up and the earth subdued, and it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, they took over the holy city, they took over its treasures, they came against it. They came against us who were there who built it. Even shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. What a glorious, wonderful time that will be. No more war, no more hate, no more anger. They'll come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles and sing and rejoice before the King of kings and Lord of hosts. That's why we're here today, is to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and sing praises to Him, knowing that He is going to send His kingdom and this scripture is going to be totally and fully fulfilled. We're doing it in type today, but we need to be doing it in the way that it will be kept then. Therefore, there is no room for these eight days for any discouragement, for any doubt, for any disparagement, for anything evil. There's no room for that. We're here to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. That's what we're here for. That's what we better do. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. If the family of Egypt or the world go not up and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherewith the Eternal will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. If you don't keep the feast then, you will die. If there's no rain, there's no crop, and there's no food. And if you have the plague come upon you, plagues kill. So if you don't have any rain and no food and you're sick, and you're about to die, you're going to say, Where's the feast? Where's the feast? i got to go to the feast. The whole world. Now, they're going to want to go to the feast then. When they're about to die, they'll say, I'm going to the feast. I'm going to go worship the King of the Lord of hosts because He's the one that gives rain. He's the one that heals plagues. He's the one that has healed the whole earth except me. 
So I think I better go. In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness to the eternal. Everyone will be singing holiness to God. It'll go so far as to even any bells you put on the horses are going to be singing praises to God in the way that they ring. I don't know exactly what that means or how it'll be done, but the bells on the horses may have a tune. Hallelujah, hallelujah as it rings. I don't know. And the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Big bowls and full. Everything will be wonderful. Yep, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness to the eternal of hosts. The food you eat, every pot, will be done in thanksgiving and holiness to God. Every meal we have here should be done in rejoicing and thanksgiving and holiness to God. We ask His blessing. We give thanks for food. Christ did that when He was here on the earth. And when He had given thanks... He broke bread. Every house then is going to give thanks and the pot, the food, will be holiness to God. Every house will worship God and therefore their food, everything, will exhibit holiness to Him. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them. They'll share it and seethe therein. They'll cook together. We have an opportunity here to do some cooking together and fellowshipping. I don't do much cooking, sorry. But I have a kitchen. And any of you, any time you want to eat and you want to fellowship, are welcome to come and use my kitchen and fellowship together and cook for each other if you want to. Maybe you're staying in a tent. And you don't have much of a kitchen. Or somebody's in your house and you don't have a kitchen for the feast. <coughs> Mine's right over there. Doors unlocked. Come on in. Stay all night. Stay a little longer. Pull off your coat and throw it in the corner. Now I'm saying this because that's what this says it'll be like in the millennium. That everybody will share. They will come together. And they will sing in holiness. And even the bells on the horses will sing holiness to God. What a world that's going to be. And you and I will not be in it as human beings. We will be kings and priests ruling over it. And helping and directing people and how they go about it. So let's learn how to go about it now. And let's rejoice and be sure we worship the King, the Lord of hosts, as our primary thing. Go out in the desert and sing to Him. Pray to Him. Worship the King, the Lord of hosts. <coughs> Fellowship among yourselves, yes. <coughs> but don't allow that to take the place of worshiping the King. So that's what we're here to do. There's no time for worldliness. 
<coughs> there's no time for bad attitudes. There's no time for criticism. There's no time for anything like that. You hear any of that? Shut it up. I mean that. Shut it up. Tell people, that's not what I'm here for. I don't want to hear it. Shut it off. <coughs> you know, when people get together, sometimes they get on stuff that really shouldn't be. When Christ rode into the city on an ass, what did he do? They sang hosannas to him as he rode in. And when he got off, he saw things going on in the temple that should not have been going on. Money changers there for money in the temple is what they were doing. And he ran their asses out of there. He just got off one and ran theirs out, if I may use a little vernacular. And if you don't like it, I'm sorry, but I did anyway. Because God talks about those things too. But he didn't put up with what he saw going on. We are here to sing hosannas to the king who was lowly and rode in on an ass. And we are here to be sure that his standards, his ways, are upkept. And if we see something that is contrary to that, we stop our ears. We run it out of the temple. Get that out of here. That's not what we're here to do. So I don't want to end this on a negative note. That's not a negative note anyway. That's cleaning things up. That's making them the way they ought to be. So while we're here, we don't have room for anything but Philippians 4, 8, and love to God and love to each other, worshiping the King in songs and praises and in prayer, the Lord of hosts.